Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance. I am Dr. Bill Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by hybrid athlete and coach at Omnia Performance, Fergus Crawley. Now, I've been watching Fergus's YouTube channel for well over a year now, and I've been so impressed with just how he's pushing the boundaries of human performance. Despite misconceptions around strength training and endurance training simultaneously, he's been able to show that you can hit impressive numbers while powerlifting, while at the same time training for an ultramarathon or an Ironman. Really enjoyed this episode as Fergus discusses his accomplishments, how all of these physical challenges have allowed him to redefine what is hard, and also how he programs his hybrid training. And if you're thinking of competing in multiple sports, then this is the episode for you. I want to take a moment to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, head to our website, theory.com and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Fergus Crawley. Fergus, how are we? I'm good. I've had a rollercoaster of a week, as we've just been laughing about <laughs> off screen. Yeah, well, we saw each other, what, Thursday, Friday last week, and you've had so many different things happen to you already these past few days. yeah. yeah. It was, a week, it was a week ago, it was today, wasn't yeah. it? So, yeah, oh, Friday it was, was travel and prepare. And then Saturday was a 600 kilo powerlifting total into a sub six hour 60K <laughs> in the same day. Only. Sunday was my birthday and proposing to my now fiance, Erin. Monday was good up until about 
8pm and then food poisoning symptoms started to set in. Monday night was rampant food poisoning. I'll leave you to figure out the details. Tuesday was a write-off because it was a whole day of sleep behind. I was completely empty and was just so incredibly lackluster with existence in general because I just felt so worn out and weak Mm. that it was just a day of recovery, really. Thursday, Wednesday was productive again. I sort of caught up on the work on the work that I needed to do on Tuesday, and here we are. So yeah, fairly tumultuous couple of days. Yeah, several highs and lows. Yeah, but huge congratulations on your engagement and obviously completing the uh, mammoth six-hour run plus powerlifting. I definitely will ask some questions around that. For those listening to the podcast that are not too familiar with your work, do you want to give a bit of a brief introduction about yourself? Yeah, so I'll be as brief as I can, but there's sort of two or three sides to what I do really. One is very much focused on mental health awareness, fundraising off the back of a negative experience I had with my own mental health from 2014 to 2016, culminated with a suicide attempt in May of 2016. So since then, I've raised just over £100,000 for Movember through a series of campaigns built around physical slash endurance challenges. We'll touch on those in and of themselves further down the line, but I've just found a real rewarding experience and a effective way of campaigning for the cause that I've become hell-bent on doing continuously. So starting conversations amongst men and continuing conversations amongst men that are more open and honest is sort of the real crux of it. I could give you death by detail on on sort of how we've got here and everything. But that is the real top line summary. Alongside that, I'm, I guess, a high-performing hybrid athlete. It's not hard to be high-performing in such a niche field of the world. But still, I've become a bit of a specialist in the same day challenges. So for those that might not be aware, in CrossFit Level 1, since about 2001, maybe, as early as that, the ideal CrossFit athlete that was discussed within the CrossFit Level 1 coaching course was somebody who would be able to squat 500 pounds and run a sub five minute mile on the same day. And the premise was just because that is a great way of summarizing the uh, polar opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of demand. And up until 2020, nobody had ever done that. I'd always had it on the back burner because it was kind of something that I was good at because I'm a squat specialist. It's about the same as my deadlift. I'm very good at adapting to new demands and I, I've become quite a competent runner over the past sort of several years. So I'd had it in the back of my mind and I saw that someone over in the States was actually sort of publicly gunning for it. So I thought, oh, well, now's the time. So sort of stepped into the ring there and then ended up doing it the week after he did. So he was first to get there, a guy called Adam Clink, and then the week following I managed to get there as well. And thought because he'd done it the week before, I'd try and add in a new element, which was a sub five hour 50K. But once you've spewed your guts out running a 458 <laughs> mile, having spent 30 minutes on the floor rolling around, having reached a new dimension of redlining, a sub five hour 50K was a little bit out of reach. So I think I covered 44 and a half K in the five hours and just called it there. So it was basically a sub five minute mile, 500 pound squat, which is 227.5 kilos and a marathon in the same day. So that was July of 2020. Since then, I've done a extreme triathlon, a sort of full distance training triathlon as well as a couple of halves. And then July of 2021, exactly one year to the day, just purely by coincidence, was the Outlaw Triathlon. And I thought, so one year anniversary, let's put a spin on this. And I attempted and succeeded with a 1,200-pound, 545-kilo powerlifting total, the same day as a sub-12-hour Ironman distance triathlon. So another challenging day. Thankfully, threw up with 8K to go on this one. So there's actually a theme for me here that I hadn't really clocked. I didn't throw up on most of these things. Same premise. So just a bit of fun, really. It's not like a... The only one well-established was the 500-pound squat and sub-five-minute mile, but I thought I'm going to play on that premise because it's the same thing. Top-end strength, sort of long-distance endurance, and manage the 1,200-pound total and sub-12 Ironman distance triathlon. And then I had a third one in my head that I was thinking, how are you going to make this work with plans? And then thought I'm going to use the rest of this year to just focus on it a little bit because I was due to be racing the Patagon Man in Patagonia, which is one of the extreme triathlon races in December, but decided that travel was too volatile to commit. Thank goodness I did because it got cancelled two days before it was due to go ahead. So that would have been um, a difficult rickety car back to Santiago to fly Mm. home, I think, had we been there at the time. But 
I have recently basically just bumped up my strength work, dropped off the top end, sorry, top end volume triathlon stuff. So the bike has basically become two high intensity, well, one high intensity maintenance session, one low intensity steady state session a week. Swimming has become one interval, one volume rather than real high volume Ironman distance stuff. Mm. So I've dropped that to make space for a bit more weightlifting volume or powerlifting volume rather and really focused on top-end singles, top-end doubles, top-end triples, and then built up my volume up to the sub-six-hour 60K, so built up to a 40-50K at pace, and then did a big weekend of split volume over three days at that pace just to really drill that time in in that pacing zone, Mm -hmm. so it became second nature almost, and became quite efficient in that heart rate as well. So it did become my sort of zone two, zone three, which is ideal. And then, yeah, this Saturday just gone sub six, uh, sorry, 600 kilo powerlifting total and a sub six hour 60K in the same day, which is just a bit of fun. And then in that entire period, there've been the big charity endurance challenges. There have been multiple full distance triathlons, extreme triathlons, sort of cons- consistently run a sub 25K, sub 40, 10K, round 205, 210 pounds six foot for reference so i'm not a midget that's really really sort of wide and i'm not that tall that's so i'm kind of i'm kind of average height heavy on the heavier side for an endurance athlete but just for context there yeah other than that i'm quite average i like to be proficient across disciplines you could call it a jack of all trades master of none but i would like to think that i'm at the top end of being a jack of all trades master of none as it's a bit more popular these days as people i think have become more explorative with their training since lockdown since they didn't have gym access, since they've got a bit stagnant with things, or since they want to achieve a tangible goal like a marathon, a half Ironman, an Ironman, or a sub-20 this, sub-40 that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I I don't think you're a jack-of-all-trades. I think you're a specialist hybrid athlete. Like, if you think about it, when people think of, like, being a specialist, they're, okay, they do one sport. Okay, cool, but your sport is one sport, but it just involves two very different elements. But you've broken that sport down to a point where you know exactly what kind of physical qualities you need for it and then you therefore train for both of them so it's almost like you are a specialist in a new area of sports science that you've kind of led the way with like you know i know that crossfit i i I view it as i view it as the same premise that crossfit was created on just that this doesn't have the commercial popularity that Mm. crossfit does yet so whilst crossfit is a sport in and of itself You've still got, well, it's mostly CrossFitters online saying that I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, because I can't sit at threshold for 60 <laughs> minutes and clean a lot. But it's, yeah, I, 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 w- I would tend to agree with you, but understand why people are still a bit resilient to that, because I am taking mm-hmm. different elements of very, very, well, take, literally doing different sports side by side. So you could very easily say, well, one thing versus the mm-hmm. other. And people have a tendency to, if they're a runner, they'll look at my running times and say, oh, well, he's not that good at running. Mm-hmm. And just ignore the weightlifting side of things and vice versa. You'll have the power to say, oh, well, he's not even that strong. And then might be the sort of people like I was when I was a powerlifter who get out of breath being going up a flight of stairs. So it was kind of a, the challenge is people don't tend to have congruent understanding across multiple disciplines, which means it's quite hard to contextualize for most people. Mm. So I think your average gym go and your average CrossFit and your average, I'd say probably 10 years of training plus people that just have a keen interest in sport in general tend to really understand and really chime with what I do and what I like to do. And we've had a lot of athletes and clients come to us through on there over the years that are are sort of very much in that space. But I think for those that are specialists in the individual sports I practice, Mm. they struggle to make the gap psychologically. Well, they struggle to understand the nature of the challenge, which is managing and balancing energy systems that don't necessarily speak to one another to be competent across them yeah what what challenge you've done was the hardest to do as in yeah you you, you've you've (laughs) described a few day ones which sound absolutely horrendous yeah and intriguingly i'm like oh i really want to try that myself because i want to just know how that feels but which one of them do you think was the hardest not necessarily the training for it was the hardest we can go into that but on the day what do you think was the most difficult to do so i think if you asked me at the end of the day on every single one of them i'd say that one but i think objectively i'll try and be as objective mm. as i can about this but i think i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to subcategorize somewhat as well i think the the hardest in the sense of where the word hard was redefined for me was the sub five minute mile because 
One, I had 500 pounds squat in my legs. Two, I was 210 pounds, so a sub five minute mile at that body weight is hard as is. Three, I was dealing with a bit of a headwind on one side of the track that was exposed, so I didn't even reap the rewards of a tailwind on the other side. And four, the guy that I had pacing me was the only person I knew within 250 miles that could run the sub five minute mile. He was a rugby player, not a track athlete, and he's just alarmingly fit all the time. So I said, Doug, can you go out and practice the sub five minute mile, see if you can do it? Did a 455. I was like, oh, God's sake. Right, okay, fine. Yeah, can you pace me on Saturday? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go. Do you have a Garmin? No, maybe I can borrow my mum's old one. So he didn't know how to set it up, really. I kind of helped him set it up so that he could have pacing on screen. But then he basically went out with the pacing strategy that I'd given him, but his watch wasn't giving him the feedback, so it was all off perception. So we ended wow. up running a 64-second 64 64 400 on lap one. The brief was 113, 114, 115, full send. He went 104, 111, 118, and then it was basically for me to go. So that 104 was, I mean, far too fast. Mm. So the ramifications of that by lap four were horrendous. And I can honestly say when I had 120 meters to go, if you'd asked me what is absolute maximum output you can give, it would have been at that point. And I thought, oh my God, I have 120 <laughs> meters left into a headwind. How can I possibly do that? So there was a real choice made there in my head of, do you can this or do you just keep doing what you're doing right now and hope that you can hang on somehow? Acknowledge there's going to be degradation, but just keep striding. And that remaining 120 meters was was like an out-of-body experience in terms of suffering. My heart rate, the heart rate feedback I got on that was my, my heart rate peaked at 209, whereas previously I thought I couldn't hit 200. <laughs> and it was once I once I crossed the line, I went to stop my watch, tripped over my spike, and I was on the floor. I was on the floor for half an hour, threw up after half an hour. I was like a limp fish. I had no concept <laughs> of how I was ever going to be able to do anything ever again. Like I just headache. Limbs were floppy. It was it was just complete exhaustion. Like I'd, I'd fully emptied the tank, which made me wonder about when I thought I'd emptied the tank in the past. And I thought, oh, you're barely working hard at all there, Fergus. So that, 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 that redefined what hard was for me there, but in a very maximum effort, emptying the tank sense. Hard psychologically was probably Project Vertical with mm -hmm. Johnny Payne, who's been on the podcast in November 2020, which was one of the charity projects. The premise was that we were continually ascending and descending Ben Nevis for 11 days. We were aiming to achieve the world's first vertical marathon, so 42,200 metres of vertical gain repeatedly. And we were going to do that by going up and down Ben Nevis for as long as we could, basically. We had 11 days budgeted in terms of volunteers, finances, etc. So we were really hoping to get it done there. But we finished having done just under 30,000 metres in the 11 days, I think. So we, we did what we could. So for the narrative of the project, separate conversation. For the narrative of the project, it was a huge success. But on the metrics that we set out to achieve, we, we sort of fell short. But the psychological challenge of getting battered about by spending 12 to 15 hours a day on Ben Nevis in very variable conditions, up to minus 19 at the top, 90-mile-an-hour winds on day one and day two. Getting up at 3 a.m. every morning in the dark and howling wind, when under fatigue, when in pain, when having barely slept for the four to five hours that you had to sleep because you were in so much pain, the psychological challenge is simply getting out of bed every morning, knowing you were going to do the same thing, Groundhog Day format, that you were the day before, and had six, seven five, whatever it was, days left each and every morning. Psychologically, that was a real battle. But we slowly learned that once we got back on the hill and got moving, we were okay. So I think by day nine, day 10, I had enough confidence in the fact that as miserable as this was, I'd be okay once I was moving again. That that confidence actually gave me a bit of a kick up the arse to get out of bed. But the, the honestly, I can't put into words how psychologically demanding it was from an emotional, from a resilience point of view just to actually force yourself out of bed it was like i was looking around the room for for ways to escape i was thinking of ways i could pull a sickie just the same old mm -hmm. the same old stuff we do when we're 15 on a rugby pitch in the cold or when we don't want to have that awkward conversation about a pay rise with a boss whatever it is it's the same sort of habitual human thing that we consider but it was on such a extrapolated scale for me where i just had no comprehension of how i could possibly get out of bed there was just no way it was going to happen and then yeah, battle ensued each and every morning and then got through it. So psychologically, that was very hardening in that sense. 
Comparing the 1212 and the 660, I had a hard time on Saturday because I cramped really aggressively like a tree trunk. Like my whole huh. lower body just went completely cramped at one point and I went timber into like a hedge at about 52K when time was getting a little bit tight in terms of what my average pace needed to be. But the sustained suffering wasn't quite as aggressive as the 1212 because I had to be up and lifting at 2 a.m. No, 3 a.m., sorry. So I was up at 1.30 mm-hmm. to be lifting, squatting at 3 a.m. I then had to be done lifting by 4.15 at the latest. So I had to build up to a total in under an hour and then get to transition for 5 a.m. So the, I was on one and a half hour sleep into powerlifting meet, wow. then into a full Ironman distance triathlon. So to be honest, the swim the swim was terrible because the bench press and the deadlift from the upper back just made my... I, I was about 15 strokes in. I was like, oh dear, this is going to be awful. So my logic for the swim was just get through it. It was my slowest swim of that distance ever. So I did three point... It was actually 3.9K or closer to four according to my watch because it was a big course, but should have been 3.8K. I did it in 129, I think. And then got onto the bike, stomach started to feel a bit ropey because the second I put the deadlift down in the morning, my stomach just did a tumble turn. I thought, hmm, that's going to come back later. But didn't think anything of it. And then on the bike, it got progressively harder and harder to eat. And triathlon is basically just you continuing to suffer and not running out of energy. That's all it really is. And you get faster and faster as the years go on. You get lighter and spend more on your bike. That's (laughs) in essence what it is. So... The bike actually went really, really well. I was 118th out of 1,400, I think, um, oh. on my time. So I did a 527 bike there, so 112 miles, 180K, 527. Got off the bike, run started solid up until about 28K, and then I just I was at every single bite of food, every single sip of water from about kilometre 160 on the bike had been a real struggle. So I was then playing with fire on the run, knowing I could bonk at any point. The heat had really gone up. The humidity had gone up. It was about 28 degrees, but a grey day. So people were sweating. People were walking back. People were really (laughs) suffering because it was deceptive. And then I tried to have a gel and spent the next 15 yards with my head in my hands, trying not to throw up, trying to keep it down because I knew I needed the energy. So that became draining. But I think the... Just the sustained suffering of that was very, very unique in the sense that I had the physiological demand of the lifting on top of the Ironman. I had the sleep deprivation that went with it because it was genuine, like like it was that that was no sleep. Like you normally get three or four hours of sleep before an Ironman anyway because they start pretty antisocial times. But this was this was like nothing, like absolutely nothing. There was no, I didn't enter any sort of deep sleep whatsoever. It was a nap. So that really caught up with me. I, I, I was I had no words when I finished. Like I'm normally quite decent with words and articulating myself, and yeah, I was just drooling by the end of it. So the sustained suffering and battle I had to go with myself to get to the finish line in the time, and the, the real key indicator as well was my processing of information and pacing to get to the finish was terrible. So it got to about 15k to go, and I just I just didn't know how fast I needed to be going or what I needed to be doing. So that was a real mental battle and the physical onslaught was very intense and then i threw up with 8k to go and then chinned two flat cokes and one caffeine gel and half a banana stood there for about 45 seconds trying not to throw up again and then thought go and then just sat at what must have been high threshold for as long as i could it felt like it was funny it felt like five minute miles maybe five thirty miles look back on my uh, watch at the end of it they were 445 k's so it's just just how fatigued I was was hilarious, but the physical, just the overall challenge of that day was enormous because it was the time constraints, the organisation, the logistics, the stress, the physiological demand was big. Saturday was very challenging in its own way because it was cold, it was demanding, it was dealing with cramps. I had a, a higher, more demanding, objectively total to deal with. But the sort of three summaries are redefining hard five minute mile redefining psychological torment, Project Vertical, I'd say the most all-encompassing across those sort of two two metrics demand was probably 1212. And then everything else training-wise, event-wise between then has been difficult in its own right, but it's mm. those have been training lessons for the real hard things when they need to show up and, and scrap through them. In comparison, do they, do they feel easier? 
And now you've kind of redefined what is hard in several different domains. Do you use those reference points when deciding what challenges to take on next? I do. However, I very much fall into the camp of these things can go dormant just as easy as they can be built. So it's funny, whenever I... The, the, Kelt, the Keltman specifically, because the demands were very hilly, I had to get a lot of time in the hills as well as on the road. I had to drive places to get in the bike. I had to find specifically cold water. I had to go in search of terrible weather and really tough terrain. My life, just without me really noticing, became entirely focused around that race. And then when I finished that prep, I was like, how on earth did I do that for four months? <laughs> I had no concept of how I'd actually made it work and then got out the other side of the outlaw, which obviously wasn't quite as demanding in terms of hilly, but it's still a full-distance triathlon on top of strength training. So it was still 20 to 24 hours of training a week, which is antisocial at the best of times. But then when I finished that prep and sort of had a couple of... I basically had six to eight weeks of just doing a bit more strength work, enjoying my training with no real clear goal other than maintenance across the board from tri-disciplines. And my training volume was down to about 12 to 14 hours a week, which is still a lot. But I was like, how on earth did I ever used to do this much? Because it was just just real challenging. But I do know how much I've suffered through in the past. So whenever I do start to question myself, it's, it's a case of, to be honest, the question is always, have you done enough to get here? And if the answer is yes, then I have faith that I'll find a way through it. If the answer is no, well, to be honest, I wouldn't be there if, if, if the answer was no. So the answer is never really no these days. But there is this strange subculture in, in endurance sports of being proud about, it's like the, the kids that, oh, I didn't revise much for this exam. Hmm. I'm like, well, that's stupid. Could fail the exam, you moron. You won't be laughing at them, will hmm. you? It's, it's the same. Like, well, why would you not train for an event that is designed to make you suffer? Because all you're going to do is suffer more and enjoy it less. So Saturday... I can honestly say I really actually didn't enjoy, which is the first time. Normally I finish these things and I, I'm like, oh, that was rewarding. I'm so glad I fought through that. But I think it's because it, was it wasn't a rush prep. It was the prep that I had and the time constraints that I had. And it was a stupid idea in the first place. So if I'd set out six months to do it, it probably would have been a bad use of time. So I, I made use of the energy systems that I had available to me, refined them a little bit. And that got me through a sub six hour 60K. But from about kilometre... 35, 40 onwards, I can honestly say I just didn't enjoy it. And then I finished it. I was just glad it was over. There wasn't, a, oh, yeah, nice lessons learned because there were no new lessons there for me mm. other than just continues to train for things effectively and make sure that you fuel correctly. I think that was kind of it. I mean, the, the cramps, again, I think came down to physiological stress rather than anything salt-related. But I was just so pissed off when I cramped. I was started cramping everywhere. It was just because I'd done a lot of work and I'd already started to suffer. And I was like, if this all falls apart now, I'm going to be furious. So I think the relative curve of what is hard and what I have faith I can get through is ever increasing. But that doesn't mean that every time I'm really in a hole and really suffering that I, I'm any more confident that I'm going to get through it. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same journey each and every time. Mm. I think I just have more and more faith that I'll be able to come out the other side. But the same questions are always asked in my head. The same doubts are always there. The same niggles are always there. The same fear is always there. It's just I'm better at conquering it and being more confident on it. Mm. So I've got a very realistic understanding of what I'm able to achieve, which I think is useful as well, because it means my goal setting, whilst a bit high and mighty in terms of athletic goals, I, I, I have reason to believe that I can achieve those things if I do the right, if, if I approach it in the right way to get there. So... It's ever-evolving, but I think in a in a very explorative way. So I think it basically just means if I'm going to do any... Using Saturday as an example, that all that's done is reaffirmed to me that I don't really enjoy long-distance road running because it's very monotonous, very repetitive in terms of demand because there's no variability in your gait, which means that the impact transients actually massively increased. Mm. So doing that makes me realise that if I'm going to be going into a competitive ultra in any sense of the word again... I need to be uber conditioned so that I'm way above the competency that I need to be to be able to do it well. Because if I really start to suffer too soon, I'm going to have a terrible time. I'm going to hate it. But if I'm doing 100 mile, I need to be confident that I could run 150 mile. Mm. Because by the time it gets to the 90 mile mark and it starts to suck, I only need to suffer for 10 miles. But a trail race is a completely different thing. Because I'm outdoors, there's very, the variability in elevation, variability in terrain things to look at, things to engage with, deers with green eyes to stare at in the dark to make you run faster out of fear, all these little things. 
But I think Saturday just reaffirmed for me that long distance road running isn't something that I love as much as I once did. Therefore, mm. that's a lesson that I'll carry with me in terms of my training moving forwards. Do less of that or find new ways to adapt or find different ways to adapt to that demand so that you need to do less long distance road running and training. Mm. Yeah, I didn't enjoy the final 18K of, of Saturday mm. by no by no means. And you have a YouTube channel and you've got a video coming out about Saturday soon. When does it come out? Sunday at 7 p.m. So today is the 16th. When's this coming out? Uh, next year, 2022. Next year. Okay, so today is Thursday the 16th. It'll be out on Sunday the 19th at 7 p.m. So cool. yeah, you'll be able Everyone to go it. back and find it, I'm sure. It'll probably be towards the top of the feed. Mm. But yeah, I'll be documenting the whole day. And be, I, I, don't think, I don't think I was too miserable on camera because we didn't get me cramping or anything because... If Campbell pulled out the camera at that point, I probably would have lamped him. You'll be able to, you'll be able to map out my enthusiasm. I did 10K reviews on the GoPro, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 50K. 40K gets 40K, I start to get a bit briefer. 50K is brief. And then it'll just be footage of me suffering for for sort of 10K mm. through to the end. And what's funny is I'm waiting on Campbell to send me the video because the outro that I did was so incoherent and so repetitive and so non-like me normally that I think I'm just going to have to take the first like 15 seconds of it and just redo one when I'm a bit more coherent because I think I was, honestly, I was just so happy it was done. Mm. I hadn't mentally prepared anything to sort of say, which is the way that I normally do things. I wasn't elated. I was just, honestly, I'd just, I'd been in the bin for a long time and I wanted to get out of the mm. bin. But now, talking about now, I'm very proud and very happy that I achieved it. But on the day, I just, I don't know why, I just got hit with this overwhelming sense of I can't be bothered. But again, proud that I got through it but there's some analysis for me on why did I feel that way. And I think that's some of the things that we just covered covered there. Long distance road running, the prep for it, the, the sort of environment, what's coming up and everything. And I think it was the last dance before a, a festive period. So I was just well looking earned. forward to getting that out of the way. Well earned it. festive period. Yeah. yeah, well, I say that, but I've only really earned about two days of additional <laughs> calories. So for the next three weeks where I'm justifying eating everything under the roof, I think that's poor rationalisation, to be honest. Just have your next challenge sort of like march onwards. So you'll have at least two months just to work off anything you do. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's, it's actually, it's, it's currently set for March the 5th, but I imagine that will all change. But we will, we will mm. see. We will see what Boris and the gang decide yeah, to do exactly. next. Well, I look forward to listen, uh, watching the video. I, I particularly like your videos because yours always come across very honest. So if you watch other YouTube videos on maybe some kind of similar sporting event there'll always be the bit where you go through the hard bit you know and you overcome it. it's like the hero's journey but i think they're very selective of all the bits that are quite difficult there's never anything where they go through that this is shit this is repetitive this is you know because it blatantly is it's hard and your videos have always come across that you know this is what it's like this is what it's required to get through these huge uh, training events it's not all fun and games it's it's just hard dog work but we've prepared well for it so we can actually get through the hard dog work yeah i, th I think that that's something i'm i always I, I don't know i never really made a conscious decision that i want to present myself in this way it was more just how i chose to present myself accidentally in, in the for me, I, I, I came to what I do now from a narrow-minded powerlifting point of view and have gained so much from the highs, the lows, the, the peaks, the troughs, et cetera, along the way that I can see firsthand how valuable that would be for mm. others. And I, I've, I don't know, I've got, nothing to, I've got nothing to be ashamed of where the fact that I attempted suicide very openly. So if somebody's like, oh, well, he did it, but he suffered more than the other guy, who cares? Mm. Same result, mate. Same result. So... I'd rather give people an honest account mm. of how things look to give them an honest rendition of what it could look like for them were they to try something new. Because for me, I think the main thing I want to achieve with the YouTube channel is to encourage everyday athletes, people that put themselves in one box rather than the other, that actually they can work up to things that entice them or scare them without needing to fear it too much. And for people to put away or put to bed the idea that to be able to do an Ironman, you need to be doing it in sub-12 first time, otherwise you're shit. <laughs> Just these stupid things that these subcultures within sports make you feel when I train like this because I enjoy it. Yes, I happen to make some sort of publicly facing things work well for me from a engagement point of view. But that's ultimately just because it's what I've become good at through practicing and training the way that I do because I enjoy doing it. And I know a lot of people have tried new things, got into triathlons, ran the first 5K, ran the first 10K. We've had athletes take on things that scared them. We've had strength athletes run the first marathon. We've had 
triathletes squat the first uh, 140 kilo three plate squat because they thought about it for years but never knew how. And ultimately, if I can give people the confidence to try new things, I think the most effective way for me to do that is through being honest. And I found that being honest is a much, much easier way to live my life than it is by having any sort of agenda or narrative. It'd be exo- I've tried pretending that I was one thing when I was the other for two years when I was suffering depression and it was exhausting, it was draining and it made me miserable. So I'm just going to be honest every step of the way now, really. And if that means it's me pissed off kicking twigs into a canal 50 miles into a 60 miler, then that's what it's going to be, <laughs> plain and simple. Yeah, I think people are recognising authenticity or people are getting better at recognising it. And that's why I think on top of all the impressive events that you've and physical events that you've actually participated in, I think it's that authenticity which really relates to your viewership and why it's just you know gone through the roof over the past year or so i guess i guess yeah especially since you've uh, gone full-time with it yeah no thank you very much yeah full-time as of march and yeah main main focus has just been showcasing more of the back office i guess i think instagram for me for a long time was a was as much a training diary as it was an instagram mm-hmm. page and i've kind of moved away from that in the sense that the training diary real detailed stuff is all on youtube because it's much easier to convey that way i can contextualize information I can go beneath the surface when the character count on Instagram only allows you to say so much. And then sometimes things will be taken out of context and you need to fire fire mm. a little bit on making sure people's understandings are all correct. And I don't know, I, I, I want people to leave any content I create with the understanding that I wanted to give them. I don't want there to be any stones unturned and YouTube's a great way to do that. I always knew it was going to be a platform I wanted to focus on more because I enjoy making the videos. And I also know that I'm quite uniquely positioned with the extreme triathlon stuff, living in Scotland, mm. having access to all this stuff to be able to bring more people onto new disciplines. So that wasn't an opportunity I wanted to pass up on. And more of the public speaking stuff with the mental health side of things is ultimately what gave me the confidence to, to go full time with it. But yeah, the DNA throughout all of that, as you said, has been just making sure whenever I make a decision or whenever I start working with someone, whenever I do something with someone, whenever I present any information the big question is always is this authentic and if i get any inkling that it's the it's not then i bought a bought a bought <laughs> because i i'm not confident i can could maintain any sort of facade around any information anything that's being sold any brands i'm working with any uh, youtube videos i'm putting out for the sake of engagement or virality or any of that mm. stuff so i'd rather it's much easier for me to just do the stuff that i enjoy and i've i've, I've done a bit of trial and error this year with youtube on what goes well bit more informative stuff people are interested in if it's stuff that they can take from but other than that people are just interested in watching me suffer and train which is interesting i probably wouldn't watch myself do that but it's what people are fascinated in because it's it's an insight into somebody that like my sole discipline is training as a hybrid and there aren't many people doing that at a decent level so i think yeah i think the fluidity between disciplines as well is something i want to want to hammer home because it if you're competent across energy systems, it means that you're very adaptable to new demands. Work capacity, a lot of the evidence suggests work capacity is ever increasing. And the higher it gets at any one point, the easier it is to get back at that, get back to that at some point. And that's something I've experienced firsthand. I mean, my squat, I'm confident I could be, I said this to you recently, mm. I could be 15 pints deep and I could squat 180 <laughs> kilos, I think. And Has anyone ever asked you to do that? Now you've said it, it's like... Mm. Nope, but the time will come. The time will come. I think I'll have to work it into my stag do in some yeah. way or something, perhaps. 15 pints is an awful lot of pints, actually. You know what? Funnily enough, I actually have two kegs downstairs for uh, some beer drinking this weekend that's happening that I could could put this to the test to, as the keg is currently nine yards away from my squat rack. And I've just got a brand new power bar from Black Box, which <laughs> I need to put to the test. So you never know. You might be getting a message from me on yeah. Sunday morning saying, I did it, or broke my spine. I was you wrong. need one of those hats... Those hats with the like beer things. Yeah, and the yeah, straws. Just, yeah, I could yeah, do it maybe up. whilst doing it. Yeah, just bit of beer bong whilst <laughs> 180 kilos squatting. <laughs> there's a new there's sport. A, well, that's it. There you go. It, it, there's a viral reel yeah. there. I think that's the way to look at it. But again, I couldn't be asked making that happen. It seems like an awful lot of effort just to take the piss online a little bit. So we'll see. <laughs> but <laughs> the work capacity narrative is, is something I'm fascinated in. And, and the more that I do, the easier it is. Like my threshold pace, even if I don't run for four or five weeks, always sits at sort of a, there's a baseline. So I'm always surprised when I go back to it, but that's come from repetitive hard work over a long period of lo- long period of time. So again, it means that psychologically, I've got a very good relationship with managing training around workload, managing training around travel, et cetera, because I'm never hard on myself when things can't happen. Stress is stress, physiologically speaking. So mm. 
whether it comes from a barbell, whether it comes from pounded tarmac, or whether it comes from a flight being delayed, it's it's all cumulative, and I need to keep on top of that for my my overall performance across the board. Mm, yeah, I'd like to use that as a bit of a segue, if that's all right, to go towards or provide a bit of an example. Right, say you've got a challenge, an Ironman, and a powerlifting attempt in the morning. Okay, well, and you've got six months to do it. Where would you start? Where would you start breaking down the demands of that particular challenge so you know what particular things that you would uh, work for? Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't have six months, but the premise is pretty similar, really. We, we being Omnia, mm. myself and Johnny, would always look at baseline testing for, for metrics, for training metrics. So with the powerlifting, it would be squat, bench, and deadlift. So we'd look at, depending on where we are, it probably, the ideal world would be a training, training max or an RPE9 single across the board. And then we'd understand that that could probably, we could probably account for 5% more on top of that with a bit more conditioning to singles, just neuro, neurologically speaking, et cetera, et cetera. So but a, a triple or a double would work well if somebody's not that conditioned to singles at this point, for example. So for me, I, I'd do a single. Let's use me as an example here. So I, I'd, I'd find an RPE9 single across the board. I would look for a lactate threshold test. I'd look for a low intensity test, so an aerobic aerobic efficiency test across sort of 30 to 45 minutes. I would establish my FTP and I would establish a sort of baseline pace for a one and a half to two kilometer swim. And then I compare that to a 100 meter, 200 meter interval time, something like that, in the knowledge that those could get closer and closer as time went on. So once I'd have those baseline metrics, it would be a case of understanding the relate. Let, let's say I'm coming into this new, so I haven't already done this before, but it would then be a case of understanding the interaction between the heavier lifting and the endurance side of things because it can be quite variable. So what I found from my training was it was almost a one week on, one week off in either direction, strength or endurance. So one week's my squats would feel fantastic. And then I'd go into my the rest of the week on my endurance stuff and feel like I've been hit by a bus. And then I'd come into the following Monday and I couldn't break the floor with 75% of my 1RM deadlift. And then the rest of the week, I'd be absolutely flying on my feet. My brick would feel like I could have gone forever. It, it was funny in that sense. So what I found was the, the I basically worked in a two-week max intensity cycle almost. Mm. So we basically took my training max down to 90% of that RPE9 single and then worked there. So all my reps were always moving well and moving smoothly. And we know that I respond really well to a taper. So that just means I just have to condition myself to some top-end singles nearer the time so that neuromuscularly I can make that connection and get rid of that, oh God, this is heavy feeling that you get, whilst just steadily chipping away at the endurance stuff. Because all it is, is for us, to keep it brutally simple, we combine interval work with threshold work, with aerobic work, because each component will help you realize the other in some capacity because those systems speak to one another in the disciplines. And then we just steadily push the needle over time. The strength work you can look at a bit more conventionally with periodization as such. But the endurance work alongside it is just becoming more efficient. And that is largely just ticking boxes in volume across the board and working on technical weaknesses, bike position refits, aerodynamic positions mm. here, what running shoes you're running in, whether your gait's right, whether your glute meds are strong enough to sustain 42.2K. If your knees are caving in on the squats, that's an indication that they might not be. So then we'll add in some glute med work, et cetera. So to, to, to give some context to this, the way that we trained for the 1212 became, the way, the, the way we like to train is we'd like to consolidate stressors into the same day. So the, the fatigue induced from lower body intensity is concentrated into one period of time so that you're only getting hit with that fatigue once cumulatively, if that makes sense. So practically that would look like Monday morning would be heavy lower. So that would be my heavy squats, heavy deadlifts and assistance work, but low volume assistance work. I think that's key to mention. You can't get away with doing a quote unquote leg day hmm. and then go and get through the full week because you've got too many doms to deal hmm. with. And then Monday evening would be either it would alternate high intensity interval work from anywhere from 400 to 2k reps or a Sufferfest or Zwift training session. So something like the Gorby McCarthy special on Zwift or Sufferfest, anything from 45 minutes to 90 minutes. So that's a high intensity FTP building sort of turbo trainer session. 
Tuesday morning would be an upper body session focused on bench press and then assistance focused on the weaknesses that we isolated from the RP9 single. So for me, that was tricep strength. So we worked in some close grip bench press for a sort of three week period and just blasted that for a long time, did all the work it needed to do. And I respond well to hypertrophy volume on my upper body. So that works well. Then Tuesday evening would be interval swimming. So we're keeping the higher intensity stuff towards the start of the week so that we can monitor how that interacts with the rest of the week. Wednesday morning would then be a turbo training session. Again, that's sort of similar intensity to Monday, but slightly steadier. So it'd be longer blocks. So probably up to 10 minutes of working at around 100% FTP maybe. And then Wednesday evening would be a tempo threshold run. So we'd be sitting, for me, I'd be sitting around 165 heart rate for anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. And for me, that'd be basically my half marathon or just above pace. So ideally... In the six months, we'd want that to become my marathon pace at the end of it, logic says, but variables along the way. Thursday would be a full body assistance day and a volume swim, which would be, so full body would just be basically the additional assistance that would come, would typically sit in a powerlifting leg day or a powerlifting upper body day, but we condense them into the Thursday so that you've got, they're just separate and don't accumulate as many DOMs because DOMs can delay, well, sorry, DOMS can confuse the perception of fatigue in terms of the RP scale. And because we use that as quite a dominant metric, then we don't want that to be confused. The volume swim would simply just be volume building. So it'd be, the, the brief would be as simple as whether it's in minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, whatever it is, or distance, swim, that's what it is. No warm up, no building, just go. That's what we found works for me anyway. Friday, we then started to implement pre-fatigue sessions, which were basically choosing the weak points of my tri position so my aerodynamic position on the bike and my running so for me that was my upper back that was my lower back and it was my glute meds so what we did was we chose them as the weak points and we crafted a pre-fatigue session that hammered those the day before followed that up with a three mile steady state run afterwards so there's a bit of daily pre-fatigue work induced but then the premise of pre-fatigue work as a hybrid for us and we found great success with is that if you hammer your weak points you accumulate a lot of systemic fatigue, well, localized and sort of knocking on the door of systemic fatigue the day before. When you get onto the bike the day, the following day, and you think, oh my God, this feels awful when you're in position. One, you are closer to systemic fatigue sooner rather than later than you are with localized fatigue because of the fact that you've got the fatigue from the day before, which means that you you can, in theory, get away with more volume, sorry, more more return in terms of efficiency for less overall volume, and you are also simply making it shitter, which means that when you get to the end of a brick session and you thought, wow, that was brutal, that hurt so much, when you get onto a brick session where you're not battered, not fatigued, doing a six-hour ride won't feel too bad in comparison to a four-hour ride where you're hating every second of it. So that's a bit of the manipulation that we like to use to, to basically get away with less volume because you can't just rely on volume like you could if you were just training for an Ironman. Because you've got the demands of the physio, you've got demands of the strength work to to factor in as well. So Saturday and Saturdays became brickwork for me. So, so the only real brick was on the Saturday that was just getting used to the time off the bike. That would get anywhere up to sort of six to twelve hours that training session. Well, sorry, anywhere from three to twelve hours across the train that six month training period, um, with some bigger weekends, some mock triathlons, some tapers built in. And then we'd probably four weeks out, increase the volume of bricks put on Saturday, Sundays or some midweek bricks, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the way that that would unfold. But I think the key thing to consider is whilst we'd lay this plan out six months in advance, we'd be very, very attuned to adjusting and acknowledging the data on a day-by-day basis because the feedback on perception, the feedback on performance metrics that comes with this, you need to look at quite carefully because the impact of a really bad lower body session can be indicative of systemic fatigue and systemic fatigue if you're sending somebody into a threshold run at a set pace and the heart rate comes back higher then that's going to accumulate more fatigue going into the end of the week so you've got you've got to give something somewhere so that they're working at the relative curve that we want to be working at so we don't tend to program in terms of periodization as much as we would do with just a powerlifter because that doesn't allow for the volume that you need to be to be executed from an Ironman point of view but 
the main thing to consider is that we're constantly sort of steadily, it's a very steadily increasing curve or, or well, it's, it's a line tracking upwards basically in terms of overall efficiency and fitness, I guess we like to call it. The outputs and practicality of acknowledging that sometimes one thing is going to impact more you more than the other. One session is going to be more challenging one week than the other is the following week. And there's not too much predictability to that, but we will try and predict what we can. We'll try and acknowledge what we can, change the plan as and when we can. But abandoning ego and abandoning, I need to stick to what the letter of the law says on this piece of paper as my training plan is, is essential because it means that you can then adapt to the fatigue induced from day-to-day life your fourth set of reverse lunges that just seem to take out of you that much more than the previous week, et cetera, et cetera. So very long-winded answer, but hopefully that's painted a picture of how we'd approach things. But I think the main crux of it, and the reason it was why, why it was so long-winded is because there's no real one way to skin this cat. Hmm. It depends on the individual, their strengths, weaknesses, how they respond to certain demands, hmm. how they respond to certain efficiency adaptations, et cetera, et cetera, and then adjusting as you go and making sure that you can abandon the expectation that you're always going to be able to do everything at the ability that you want it to be able to do all the time, because that's not the case. And I believe you would you'd be a genetic freak that we would like to study if that is the mm. case. Really, really cool. I really like how you started it off with describing, that, okay, you've got imp- interval tempo and then your list, or your more aerobic work. And that you can kind of see how you've balanced the strength stuff and the endurance stuff still keeping within that framework. So you've got the higher intensity high loads with the powerlifting stuff in the in earlier in the week along with the more interval stuff when it comes to your, your bike and your, and your run and then that sort of like meshes or merges into the threshold stuff towards the end of the week and then you hit the weekend where it's more your list stuff so you're kind of slowly merge you, you see what your week is like and then you sort of process through each of those stages which i i think is really cool and it what i also quite like is you talked a lot about the pre-fatigue and you gave a rationale as to why you're using that you're, you're setting it up for your your list stuff in the next day so when you describe it i can almost imagine it being another threshold session so by doing all of the all the, all the it's st- typically like a chip it's like a chip workout. Yeah. so it's like a strength endurance session basically yeah so you're constantly at that threshold level but you, you, you know you're not running every time people think of tempos they think of running or rowing or some kind of aerobic activity but technically you're trying to elicit the same response but just using exercises and then that in turn has another effect on the day after because you know because of all this rationale behind the pre-perceived that you've described so i think you know i, I love how it you know, it seamlessly merges into one phase into the other over an entire week. Yeah, that's it. So it's just simply intensity peaks at the start of the week, volume peaks at the end, and that curve inverts as we go. Mm. And that gives us the clearest way of understanding how an individual responds to the demands and the outputs given. And therefore, what do we need to adjust moving forwards? But you're exactly right. Top end strength stuff is like interval work. Tempo stuff is like the sort of steadier, higher rep endurance, in, well, more strength endurance assistance work. And then we've got the almost aerobic lifting, which is, for me, during that training period, was around 300 reps of reverse lunges with hmm. reps to failure on goblet squats when I wasn't reverse lunging. So it was basically like, it was a weight that I should be able to do for 50, 60 reps, but to be able to maintain it, my upper back was what was going, my biceps was what was going, hmm. so it was a... It was like an aerobic. It was like an aerobic demand. And for example, we've we've implemented things like for my brother's sled push. He did a thirty hour sled push, and something that I've used with a lot of clients that are training for hills, or some of the SF guys that we've got. We tend to implement lists with a twist. I tend to call it. I don't know what Johnny calls it, but we tend to implement it. It'd be fifteen minutes of running, and every fifteen minutes on the minute, you have to hit a hundred walking lunges straight back into the running. And all that's doing is it's mimicking that that pre-fatigue cycle where you are you are performing your movement under fatigue, which means that you're going to drill superior efficiency over time. And you're also at the same time suffering through strength endurance demands, eliciting adaptations there whilst in a different energy system. So whilst you're aerobically demanded or being aerobically demanded of, rather, and then you're having to execute clean lunging reps straight back into the running, it's a great way to just mean that you operate efficiently over fatigue. And obviously, this isn't if you're going for two-hour, 30-minute marathons, then there's easier ways to get there. But if you're going for a three-hour marathon and want to be able to stay efficient and stay 
strong under a, a load in the hills, then you've got to be creative about how you get there because if people don't have access to hills where they can just put a, a big heavy backpack on, there's ways of mimicking this. Yeah, for my brother with the sled, it was, it was a, I gave him on the Fridays, was a 100 meter run, 100 meter sled push at body weight, 100 lunges, and I think it was 10 rounds that I gave him actually. Yeah. So it's just real steady, just like stuff he can do with his eyes closed, but back to back to back to back. And the monotony of it as well means that when you go into the next day, actually doing stuff at a relatively easy pace seems pretty easy. So then for a few weeks, we had him doing every 15 minutes up to a three hour steady state run. Uh, 140 heart rate was the brief for him. So aiming for no higher than a 145 average HR. Every 15 minutes that passed, he had to get on a sled and push push the race weight sled, which for him was 85 kilos. He had to push it for 60 seconds straight back into running. Mm. And it was up to him to regulate his HR after that. So that might mean that the first minute was walking. But all it is, is it's drilling that efficiency over time and uh, playing on the science that we have around pre-fatigue, experiencing the anecdotal benefits we've experienced from it, and actually applying a bit of a physiological, uh, psychological layer to it rather, because... What people tend to ignore with this sort of training, with ultra endurance training, is that you can you can map things out on paper all well and good, but if people's heads aren't prepared for the misery of it, they're not going to get past mile thirty, mile forty, hour six, hour seven, whatever it is. So you need them to suffer in training. Sometimes the rationale behind programming for physiological demand is superseded by this person needs to suffer today. And actually, we we put in sessions occasionally where we expect them to fail. And come back to us reeling emotionally, being like, oh, I can't believe how badly this went, et cetera, et cetera. And we're sitting there rubbing our hands together, being like, oh, perfect. Lightning going behind Tell you. me what you've learned. What, what are you going to, what are you going to do differently next time? And then next time, oh, that was so much easier than I expected it to be. Cause it's just, there's certain things that can't be taught. There's certain things that can only be learned. And a lot of those perception details are, are integral to how we program. That's why we use RPE because we, if we took a on a relative beginner, their perception of what an RP10 is versus an RP10 12 months later would be completely different in terms of percentage of true one rep max, for example, mm-hmm. or an RP10 400 meter. That, that's always a good one. <laughs> a full send 400 meter for people is an alien thing if you haven't done them before, mm-hmm. but it's something that can be taught through just repetitive. Everything is about exposure. Adaptation is all about exposure and the right dosage and, I don't want to sit here and pretend that there's one way to do it because there absolutely isn't. But there's one way to approach it and that is acknowledge that your formula will always be changing and you need to roll with the punches, as it were. Recovering like during the week. From what you described, you had the upper body bench session on the Tuesday and I think there was upper, you know, some swimming stuff on the Wednesday. Does that act as a way of reducing the volume midweek on the legs a little bit so that you can slowly recover from the heavy stuff on Monday so that you're ready to tax them with the threshold stuff on Thursday. Is that right? Correct, to, to some degree. But the the main way that we program is, is very much prevention, not cure, in the sense that we want the dosage of programming given mm. to be just below the threshold where additional recovery is going to be required. So it, it's kind of... For the first six weeks of a program, it can be a bit tentative and cautious, but that's because we're understanding work capacity and how far we can push an athlete before they start to fall apart a little bit. So aerobic work is a fantastic recovery metric for high demand anything, really. So you've got your, that's why on a Monday, on a Tuesday, you've got your most intense sessions of the week. On a Wednesday, you've got hard, hard threshold work for the example that we're using here. So when you come to a Saturday and you've got steady, aerobic work over a long period of time that's going to be acting as a recovery metric for the work done earlier in the week and then again full range squats in terms of blood occlusion and sort of movement through range of motion is an effective recovery metric for the demands of volume training so the way in which we program is as much a recovery metric as it is a progressive theory Mm. but the main thing that we aim to do is get the programming right so that additional recovery isn't required. So the rest days are built in when required. I mean, occasionally we'll we'll get that wrong. And there'll be a day where it's like, oh my God, I blew up after two reps of 800 meters. I was meant to have six. And then we'll know, right, okay, we overspilt the mark here. And then we go back a little bit and just sort of rebuild from there. But recovery is a big buzzword that we come up against in many different ways because we can only plan so far. But if somebody's only sleeping four hours a night, they're having six pints every night, if they're mid-breakup, if they're mid, I don't know, child custody arguments, whatever it could be, that's going to be adding stress that we can't account for on paper. So then that person's recovery is going to be impacted in a way that our data 
and sort of stressor management can't really account for. So then if we start to see a downward trend in the training, then we'll reduce the volume of the training to try and get back on track. Recovery is an ever-evolving machine in the sense that we view it and we don't view it as an on or off switch. Yeah. We view it as a... Because fatigue is actually a key... It's a key training metric that we use. We try and induce fatigue mm. on purpose to make things harder. And then it's an efficiency development tool. So the, the main aim of the game is to have the, have the athlete recovered for the prescriptive strength work. However, for the rest of it, we kind of operate in a similar modus operandi to Louis Simmons and, and his, his crew because relative outputs on relative demands of the day for you as an individual are is still getting the best out of you on any given day. Mm. So if you're working at the right intensity, when you taper off, when that big heavy cloak of fatigue that's masking your fitness dissipates, mm. then you're going to be better off by having four out of eight of the sessions worked at a relative intensity rather than a theoretical intensity because you'll have got more quality execution than you would have done had you stuck to the plan on the paper that was actually too high in intensity on that day. Ah, oh, wicked. What I also really quite liked is how you, to try and judge that recovery, like you could always argue that the best recovery is a well thought out program. And you need to go through those first six weeks that you described to truly understand how your athlete actually responds to all the different stresses. And that in turn ties in with your kind of long-term programming idea because you talked how it's very linear but goes up very slowly and you know you're not there going like oh let's push it for three weeks deload push it for three weeks deload you're doing it very slowly and you need to understand the athlete's ability to handle fatigue and to stress because anything you push too far would mean then you know that linear increase actually shoots up suddenly and then it goes against how you're trying to how you're trying to how you're trying to program so being able to try and understand that and make adaptions to that overall over the week you're trying to increase very slowly but you're trying to push in certain individual sessions because you want to develop that fatigue yeah i'm seeing how everything fits in with your overall philosophy of what you're trying to achieve and yeah every single bit of stress is accounted for if you know what i mean as much as we can. I mean, there's obviously elements of stress that can't be accounted for and things get thrown at you curveball-wise. Mm. But the main thing then is to know when missing a session because you're tanked rather than missing a session because you can't be asked is a very different <laughs> thing. Um, and that's a learned skill. And I think th just to touch upon what you said there, that linear progression, there are sort of aggressive peaks and sort of momentary troughs that come from events mm. And we try and work those as effectively as possible. But a lot of the time when, especially for me, I mean, a lot of the big, real monumentous training milestones are built in as part of a training program rather than the mini event. Mm. So, I mean, I remember in previous years, I've had sort of a big Friday, Saturday, Sunday training runs up to, I think it was 15, 20, 25 miles or 20, 25, 30 miles. It was 20, 25, 30 miles, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So a huge weekend. Mm. But then the Tuesday was... Sorry, the Monday was an upper body session, the Tuesday was a swim, and then Wednesday I was back squatting and Thursday I was back running. It was just it, the way that we'd factored it in had accounted for that as part of the training program so that you don't get those emotional and physiological drop-offs that make it, like you said, that three-week up, deload, mm. go again, because it's just, it, it becomes a bit, I don't know, I, I, I find dropping intensity. So if, if you're in a, a four-week block with week three of the four-week block is the only one that's really exciting, week one or two, you're not going to execute to the best of your abilities because it's just dull. <laughs> and believe me, I can, I can just get the work done. I can get through grunt work, no problem at all. But when life gets busy and you're not looking forward to training, you're going to think, oh, maybe my hamstring's a little bit sore or maybe my head's a bit sore and I'm just going to go to bed a bit earlier this time. You know, it's, You've know, you got to work to some degree with the athlete on, on what works best for them. Mm enjoy enjoyment wise as well up to a certain level if you're a professional athlete and you've got to execute numbers on a piece of paper then you've got to do what gets you there but for most most people that just want to excel across sports you need to actually understand one less is probably more mm. in most cases and two the best way to get there is through a sustainable way of doing so rather than the conventional way that people like to train which is yeah that's sort of three week peak one week trough, go again, go again. Now, that's a really good message because I'm sure people see what you do and you, you train quite a lot, but that's because you're 
training base is much higher than anyone trying to get into the sport. So someone coming in and just copying what you do be really quite <laughs> i think there'll be quite a few negative consequences well, it'd be horrible yeah. yeah this i mean i was i was i was i got so many questions after i had a 50k training run in four hours and 56 minutes three four weeks ago on monday i was squatting 200 for doubles and like people would have assumed, like a, a, for the most people an ultra is a full week off at the very least that is the peak of their training process because it was worked into the training as part of my very mm. large over a period of years developed work capacity it was just part of the plan so yeah i think it's just the age old don't don't copy don't take the bodybuilding.com what is phil heath doing for his training and do it yourself when you're four weeks into a bro split because it's you're not at the same level and that's not a bad thing mm. it it just means that you need to work with where you are and understand the the situation you're in so that you can be the phil heath in 30 years however long it takes i'm not really that clued into top-end bodybuilding <laughs> like that but it's we all have work capacity is relative efficiency is relative the beauty is relativity allows us to develop it at whatever stage we're at so i think what we should all be excited about is how we can develop ourselves mm. rather than how we can get to the level of others and that, that is the main thing that i want to get across with any content or messaging i put off is jump in at whatever level you're at enjoy doing what you do and explore new things and just focus on developing yourself and if you're anything like me, four years or past, and you've accidentally found yourself something you really enjoy, and you might end up being quite good at it. That's that. That's the beauty of it. It's just I'm making up as I go along. So if other people can join me on that journey, then great. And actually, where can everyone find you on on the socials? Like we talked about your YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah, like you've got quite a lot podcasts, all of that sort of thing. Where can people I do, find you? I do. So Instagram is just Fergus Crawley, my name. I think there's only two of us in the UK, so you'll be hard-pressed to get mm. that one wrong. YouTube is Fergus Crawley as well. I'm not on Twitter because it seems to be a place where dreams go to die. And then if you if you are young enough to be on TikTok, I am the cage because I felt like I was being left behind. I think I'm just Fergus Crawley on that as well. But that's mostly just recycled reels from Instagram, so I can't promise much uh, creative content for you there. And then if you just search on Google as well, there'll be plenty of articles, write-ups and things around the mental health journey and collaborations I've done over the years. Some of my work with local charities, local councils, Movember, Harlequins Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, over the years. And if anyone hasn't already seen it and would like to do so, Roman Kemp's Our Silent Emergency is still on BBC iPlayer until March of 2022, I believe. And I was one of the sort of main features in that as well. So if you want to go and head there, then you can watch that. And whether you're watching it for me or otherwise, it's a great documentary and I recommend everyone to do so. Yeah, definitely. I've not actually seen that. So I will get onto iPlayer and watch that over the Christmas period. But what I do watch is your YouTube channel and I have listened to episodes of The Modern Mind UK. So oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. I also have a, I also have a podcast, <laughs> which for anyone watching is this here, The Modern Mind. The, the sort of strapline there is exploring the minds that inspire modern society, plain and simple, really. Mm. It's just a lot of the immediate network that I have, people that have got cool stories to share, lessons to divulge. And we are on episode number 18, came out earlier this week. Episode number 19 is another good one. And yeah, great selection of guests so far. And I would encourage everybody to go and listen mm. if they would be so kind. Yeah, definitely. You have some really interesting guests with huge amount of experience which you can only really inspire and like you said the overall message is to get men talking and it really does achieve that so i recommend everyone check out those episodes thank you very much i i, I agree i agree <laughs> <laughs> anyways Fergus, that was amazing we all know where to contact you and hopefully especially with human 24 we'll be catching up in the new year very soon see you next year yeah.